Hey there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's our Big Time Talker podcast. I'm Burke Allen, live in our studios in Washington, D.C., and the podcast and service of SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a meeting planner or a platform speaker, find one another at the virtual speakers platform at SpeakerMatch.com. We're going to talk books and history, two of my favorite subjects today. The book is Mingo, and the author is Jeff Barnes. He's an attorney based in the Richmond, Virginia area. And this is a book that's set against the backdrop of the mountain I grew up at the foot of. It's Blair Mountain. And there was an amazing battle that happened. It was a struggle to unionize the coal fields of America in the early 1920s. Jeff Barnes has taken the bones of that story and created a terrific novel of historic fiction. And it's now an award-winning novel as well. Jeff Barnes, welcome to the Big Time Talker. Thanks, Burke. Such a pleasure to be here with you today. First of all, congratulations on the award for the book. And if if folks aren't aware, uh, the book is a reader's favorite award, and it was for Southern fiction, correct? That's right. 2022. And the subject of the book, of course, it is set against the backdrop of those those, uh, efforts to unionize the coal fields. But what made you interested in that story? Well, uh, sort of like you, I grew up in the coal fields, uh, but I grew up on the Virginia side of the West Virginia, Virginia line. And as a kid, I knew the story very well of uh, the Maitwan shootout that occurred in May of 1920 on the main street of Maitwan, West Virginia, which is a town there in Mingo County. It uh, fascinated me that a gunfight involving dozens of coal miners and uh, 11 Baldwin Feltz agents could erupt on the main street of a town in broad daylight and a town similar to the one my father grew up in uh, in Pocahontas, Virginia, and he was actually born in May of 1919. And so I always had this rattling around in my head. I was also fascinated by brothers who ended up on opposite sides of the Civil War. And um, a few years ago, uh, started uh, thinking about putting together those two events, the real life Mate Juan shootout event with fictional brothers who end up on opposite sides of the Maitwan shootout and eventually the Battle of Blair Mountain that you mentioned, which uh, took place in August, September of 1921. And one other piece, I guess, to it was uh, in Tazewell County, Virginia during my youth. uh, And then the movie Maitwan by John Sayles was something I saw in the late 80s. And that always had sort of been rattling around in my head. So all of those things kind of came together and inspired me to write this story. Mingo, it's from Little Star Publishers and available at Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere, as, as well as Jeff Barnes' website. So you and I do have that that common uh, background, you on the Virginia side of the mountains, me on the West Virginia side. Uh, so we know these stories. Uh, and there was this movie by John Sayles, a terrific movie, James Earl Jones and and Chris Cooper uh, starred in it. It was an independent film. And and I have been amazed as I grew into adulthood, having studied about this in, in my West Virginia history class in the eighth grade, that the story of these mine wars and this Maitwan massacre are not at all well-known nationally. So for people that aren't familiar with those two stories, let's start with, with the Maitwan massacre because they're all, uh, both stories are, are tied together. So if you would, for our, our listeners, sort of uh, encapsulate that story and, and tell people what is the Maitwan massacre? So <clears throat> May of 1920, the Baldwin Felt Security Agency were, uh, it was a uh, kind of like, think of it like the Pinkertons, uh, but it was a security agency that the 
non-union coal operators uh, hired to keep the mines open and the union out. And as you might imagine, uh, they weren't particularly well liked in the coal fields by, by the coal miners. And um, they were frequently evicting uh, coal families uh, from company owned housing for suspected or actual union activities. And that uh, day, and I, the actual day escapes me, I want to say May 17th of 1920, but I may be off by a day or two. The Feltz agents had been in uh, near Matewan, just up the mountain, and evicting some folks. And there'd been a confrontation between the Baldwin Feltz agents and Sid Hatfield, who was the police chief of the town of Matewan. And Hatfield was contesting the authority, the jurisdiction of the Baldwin Feltz people to do what they were doing. And and then later on that day, that evening, when the Baldwin Feltz agents arrived back in Matewan to catch a train back to Bluefield, where they were headquartered, uh, Sid Hatfield and dozens of coal miners were waiting for them at the train station, near the train station. Uh, There's much dispute about who, sh who fired first, but when the gun spoke cleared, uh, seven of the 11 Baldwin Feltz agents were dead. Two of the coal miners were dead, as along with uh, Cabell Testerman, who was the mayor of Mingo. And Sid Hatfield was tried along with about 19 other, 19, 20 other defendants for, the, for these murders. And uh, all of them were either dismissed from the trial or acquitted ultimately. Then fast forward in uh, 2021, Sid Hatfield is being tried now for another event, blowing up a mine temple in McDowell County, West Virginia. McDowell County, as you know, I'm sure Burke was uh, more pro-company or more anti-union. And on his way up to the courthouse, right. arm in arm with his wife and, and his uh, co-defendant and his wife, they were gunned down by uh, C.L. Lively, who was a Baldwin Feltz agent. And then that kicked off this Battle of Blair Mountain, the largest armed insurrection in U.S. history after the Civil War. So that's the story that is memorialized in the movie Mate One by John Sayles. And the town of Mate One, which sits right on the West Virginia-Kentucky border, all of about three blocks long. If you go there today, yeah, there's still bullet holes in the in the Bank of Mingo uh, building that sits in, in downtown Mate One right there on Main Street. And I, I guess the thing that fascinates me about that story, Jeff, is in today's world, um, pro-union sentiment is completely different than it was 100 years ago when this happened, because at that time, uh, the unions weren't, you know, fighting for uh, wages as much as it was, uh, you know, a quality of life that completely uh, evaded the, the miners of that time. It was really rough going for a coal miner in the early 1920s in the coal fields of Appalachia. No question. And, and I, I've done a number of, of uh, talks to civic groups and, and book groups. And one of the slides that I have is a uh, 1916 uh, pay stub. To illustrate your point, the, uh, the slide is a, it's a pay stub from 1916 I don't recall the mine, it was, uh, but it was an exhibit at the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum right there in Matewan. And by the way, if any of your listeners ever have the chance, they really need to go and, and uh, take the opportunity to see the wonderful things they've got there uh, commemorating this period of time in, in uh, American history. But this, this pay stub shows for this pay period, and I'm assuming it's a month, it doesn't say, but um, 
the, the, the coal miner owed $2 and I think it was $2 and 50 cents uh, to the company store, then 25 cents uh, was deducted for uh, the burial fund, uh, 15 cents for a hospital fund and, and 25 cents for ins uh, uh, ins uh, uh, another, a doctor. And then for that pay period, he had earned $4.44. So his take home that month was $1.79. So, you know, a big issue was wages, but it was much more than that, as you say. It was, you know, they wanted to, to be treated um, at least as, as well as the draft mules that were used to haul the coal, coal out of the mines every day. They were looking for a relatively safe place to work and, and living wages. And, and they had a tough, uh, a tough, tough go of it. As a uh, a kid who grew up in the coal fields, I would hear stories from my grandfather about how miners in the 1920s, many of them were immigrants who had, had just come over from Europe, barely spoke uh, English, were sort of thrown into these situations where the uh, song 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford, you owe your soul to the company store. The reason for that was the miners were paid in scrip as opposed to American dollars. And for folks who are listening, uh, have no idea what that is. What is that? What is script? Explain script to uh, to our listeners. Sure. So uh, each, or at least most of the mines, maybe they all did, but certainly most of them had their own, as you say, currency, and it was typically a, you know, some type of of you know stamped metal, uh, a piece of metal, <clears throat> and it was only redeemable at that particular coal company store. The coal companies back then in much of West Virginia and much of the eastern coal fields, um, you know, owned owned the towns. They they owned the housing, um, the land on which the houses sat, they uh, the towns, the company store, and so they paid their uh, the miners in scrip. And when the miners would uh, want want something to purchase, they had to go to the company store and they could only redeem that script at that company store. So it kept them from being able to go out and, you know, go, go into Charleston if they could get there and buy something at a, you know, at a, a dry goods store in Charleston, for example. So it kept all the money within those, each particular coal company. And obviously that was a source of much, uh, much consternation by the coal miners who wanted to be paid in dollars. It's in that world where miners are not even paid with dollars. They wind up owing money on their death to the company that Jeff Barnes has said his debut novel, Mingo. Uh, it's available now, and, and boy, people love it. It's a page-turner. That's what the Bluefield Daily Telegraph calls it. It says a top-shelf page-turner, which holds the reader close from the emotional opening to the final explosive conclusion, Mingo from Little Star, is available now bookstores everywhere and uh, amazon.com wherever you get great books so the the Mingwan massacre is sort of the impetus if, if you will it, it lights the fuse for what becomes as you called it earlier i think the largest armed insurrection on american soil since the civil war the battle of blair mountain now i grew up at the foot of blair mountain so I know about it. As a kid, we would find armament on that mountainside. Is that right? But <laughs> in the other 49 states, oh yeah, in the other 49 states, I bet they have no idea what the Battle of Blair Mountain is. And it was the biggest battle in America since the Civil War. So you set your novel in that world. Um, give us the historical context. Then I want to talk about how you set the book uh, in and around the Battle of Blair Mountain. Okay. Um, and you know, I, 
I'm glad to know that you studied it in, uh, in your West Virginia history. I've encountered many West Virginians who told me that they really didn't know anything about it. And, and I was shocked, you know, when I did the research for this book, I had never heard of it. And I'm a, right. uh, a, you know, a big um, consumer of, of, of history and particularly American history. And I was shocked that I'd never heard about it. But so, um, you know, Sid Hatfield and, and his right-hand man, Ed Chambers, are arriving to be tried um, in August of 1921 there in uh, Welch, West Virginia, uh, in McDowell County. They're walking up the courthouse steps. They get basically executed. And then that sets off uh, the coal miners uh, who just absolutely uh, idolized Sid Hatfield because he had led them in this Mate One massacre and they had finally stood up to the Baldwin Feltz Agency and had given them the um, you know the the belief that you know they they actually had some power, and <clears throat> so about ten thousand coal miners um, led by uh, Bill Blizzard, as I recall, were uh, intending to go over Blair Mountain to get into Logan County, and Logan County, as you well know, was a very anti-union county. Don Chafin was the sheriff. I think they called him the Czar of of, uh, of Logan County. And he did a very good job of keeping those mines open and the union out. And they were going to, the miners wanted to go over Blair Mountain to uh, open up the jails and get uh, their pro union brethren out of the jails. And then they were going to go on over the mountains into Mingo, uh, Mingo County and do the same thing in Williamson County seat. And Don Chafin organized about 3,000 state troopers and security guards, agents, and um, assorted townspeople, people came from Bluefield who were, uh, who tended to be anti-union and they dug themselves in on the, uh, the uh, ridge of Blair Mountain. And uh, the battle went on for three or four, five days. Uh, the, the Don Chafin's army, if you will, had better ammunition, including three biplanes that he enlisted uh, and, and which dropped some homemade bombs on, on the coal miners. Uh, and the miners wore red bandanas around their necks and hence were dubbed rednecks. And they did that so that they could identify one another during this uh, days long battle. The battle. And it only ended when Harding sent in federal troops and made everybody uh, put down their guns, basically. So the president of the United States got involved, sent the army in to, to put down this this what was a war on this remote mountainside in West Virginia between union miners and and the non-union folks. And at the end of the day, as bloody as the thing was, and, and the union guys really took it on the chin in a big way there, um, they lost the battle, but eventually won the war, wouldn't you say? Yes, but it took them some time. You know, they, there were a number of trials that um, uh, resulted from the Battle of Blair Mountain. There were, they were tried for actually uh, uh, treason for, you know, against, the, against the state of West Virginia. And those trials were held in the same courtroom where John Brown had been uh, tried and convicted some 30, 40 years earlier, uh, 50 years earlier, maybe. And, um, and, they, and the union spent so much money defending them that they pretty much went broke. And so um, the, the union activity, as I understand it, in Mingo County was pretty much dormant for uh, almost really until uh, FDR came into, into, the, into office in the, in the 30s. And that's finally when the unions, uh, you know, took hold there in the southern uh, counties of West Virginia. And, you know, again, we can't emphasize enough that 
the unions were fighting just so that people uh, could have a somewhat livable wage in an incredibly dangerous uh, uh, occupation. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a, an amazing time in American history that very few people know about. And you decided, you know what, I'm going to do a historical novel and I'm going to drop a couple of uh, good looking young guys <laughs> into this story. You, you add in the hunk factor, uh, Durwood and Bascom Matney. And, and these guys uh, are from that, that coal mining area, but you separate them out in the novel. You send one over to Richmond, a city you know a lot about, which is sort of this, uh, you know, uh, big city, highfalutin coal culture, company culture. And the other brother, uh, you know, essentially puts that red bandana around his neck and becomes a redneck. What made you think to take uh, this this historical activity and turn it into uh, this action adventure novel? Well, you know, we all can identify with, uh, you know, well, all of us have uh, you know, some sort of family, whether it's you know by blood or association or whatever, and and we can all identify with you know family issues and and um, and I was again I have two brothers uh, one one unfortunately has passed away but we were we were always very close and I have a brother right here in Richmond with me and and as I've told people I can't imagine ever being on the opposite side of anything other than maybe a tennis net from him and so the fact that we've got had brothers who fought each other in the Civil War I was just like wow how does that happen we grow up here in blood's thicker than water. And so I wanted to explore how time and physical distance and ideological differences can drive a wedge between even the closest of family members. And, and Durwood was the younger brother by four years. He idolized his older brother, Bascom. Uh, their mother dies and, and his, the father sends the younger Durwood to Richmond to live with some well-to-do, uh, well-heeled relatives of their late mother. And so he grows up in very different circumstances. He grows up in a very, a much more capitalistic environment, a much more paternalistic environment, whereas Bascom is back toiling in the mines. And, and so, you know, I wanted to sort of explore, you know, what these different circumstances, how, how it led them to different places, and then ultimately how it reconciled when they're actually confronting each other uh, at this Battle of Blair Mountain. I thought one of these quotes that is on the back uh, of the book jacket really jumped out at me. It says, Mingo is a worthy memorial to the tough times in the Southern Appalachians. And that was written by Dean King. And Dean King is the guy that wrote um, The Hatfields and McCoys, The True Story of the Feud. As a historical fiction writer, is that, um, is that a fun part of, of writing a book? Writing a book is, is tough. Everybody says, oh, I got to write a book about it. But boy, it's it's like giving birth to a baby. There's a lot that goes into it. But I would think for a history guy like you, that digging deep into this history that most people don't know about was probably a, a pretty fun part of the process. Oh, it was, it was so much fun. I only wrote on weekends because I practiced law full time. And, and I knew that if I tried to write during the week that I'd go to work thinking about my book and not my cases. But um, I was, I was every Saturday morning, I was so excited to sit down and, and research and, and write. Um, and, and I think the, the powerful thing about historical fiction, uh, and it was, this was brought home to me by a friend of a friend who read Mingo before it was published. And she told me that if she'd encountered the mind wars in a history text, her eyes would have glazed over. But in the context of historical fiction, um, she found it 
very, very uh, compelling and interesting. And uh, it, it led her to go on and do her own research after that and, and about the Mayan Wars. And so I think that, again, the powerful historical fiction is it introduces people to something that they might not otherwise think they're interested in or pay attention to in, in a his, history book. But in the context of historical fiction, it, it, it's very enjoyable. And as a friend of mine has said, uh, I've heard him say many times, if you want to understand history, read a history text. If you, I mean, if you want to uh, learn history, read a history text. If you want to understand it, read historical fiction. So it was fun um, combining the historical with these brothers, you know, these brothers that I hoped could, I could weave through this rich seam of historical events and interact with these great historical characters to come up with a story that people would, you know, would find, uh, find interesting um, and, and worthy of, of, the, of the time. Because there's so many books out there that people have to choose from today. So um, <clears throat> that was sort of my goal. And I think that's why I like historical fiction so much. You, you talked a little bit about your process there, that you practice law during the week and, and that you would write primarily on the weekends. And most of the folks I know who are successful writers like yourself, uh, they, they do it one of two ways. They will either sit down at the computer and they will stay there for a set amount of time and not get up. And it doesn't matter if, if not one word comes out, but this is my time to write. Uh, and, and there's another group that will uh, not get up from that laptop or that desktop until they've written X number of words. Now, there's a smaller number of, of writers who are, are very successful that, that uh, follow the muse. They only write when inspiration strikes, but those tend to be the people uh, that, that write much less, you know, the Harper Lees of the world that, right. that have one or two books in them. What was your specific process? How did you go about it from a, a you know, a nuts and bolts standpoint? Well, um, you know, You'll, you've heard probably about there are two types of writers, uh, plotters and panters, and plotters are those people who outline everything. And, you know, before they ever sit down to write, they have this great outline, detailed outline, and they just kind of have to, you know, fill in the gaps. And then there are panters, people who fly by the seat of their pants. And and I, I, right. I, I kind of think I'm somewhere in between, maybe closer to a panter. But that said, once I finished the research, I knew the arc of the story and I knew the arc of the characters because I had these great historical events and they're almost like they were like mile markers. And so um, I, what I would do is, you know, Saturday mornings, I'd sit down and I would take stock of where I was in the book. And uh, this, the book is told through the points of view of the two brothers. So, you know, I decide, all right, where am I in the story? Where I am, am I in the development of these brothers? And would decide, okay, I, I'm going to write this chapter about Bascom and and figure out what I needed to convey. And I would come up with the setting and the chapter as I did it. And and I didn't have any set number of words or goals. I would write as much as I could on Saturday, and then on Sunday I would try to finish either a chapter or a portion of a chapter, and go back and edit it pretty thoroughly, um, so that it, by the end of the weekend I would have a chunk. Uh, chapter or part of a chapter that I wouldn't be embarrassed to show to somebody. And I just sort of followed that process for, uh, I, I spent about a little over three years writing the book, uh, a little bit more, uh, another five months, probably researching it, but, uh, and it worked for me. I, you know, I think if I tried to say, I'm only going to write, or I have to write 10,000 or 3,000 words today, I'm not sure I would have succeeded at that, but I didn't, that said, I didn't have any problem. These brothers, I kind of 
I don't know, after a short period of time, they were sort of in my head. They, they, they were talking to me almost. Did you know how the book was going to end before you started it? So not exactly. No. Um, and I won't, I won't give away the ending, but, but I knew I had a general sense of how it was going to end. I just wasn't quite sure um, who was going to be involved, if I, if I can say that. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess I shouldn't give away the ending. But, but so, no, that, that did evolve. Uh, the actual ending did evolve as I got closer to the end and, and the whole uh, work was coming into better focus. I, like, I realized that what I originally was going to do probably was not going to be as effective as the way I uh, chose to end the book. Jeff is out speaking about the book and you get signed copies at his website as well. Um, with this book, you said it took you three years uh, to get through it, writing on weekends, a little more than three years. And, and you practice law during the week. So when you come back to that story on Saturday morning, how do you keep the continuity together? You know, so I, I can barely remember what I, I ate for lunch yesterday. And you've got to <laughs> reimburse yourself into this world of these characters after doing something completely different all week long. How do you do that? Are you one of those guys that can just compartmentalize things really well? Or did you keep notes? Did you have uh, stickies, sticky notes all over your, your laptop? How did you do that? I don't know that I'm in general and in, in my life that I'm great at compartmentalizing things, but I, I managed to succeed with the book. And it really, for me, it, again, it wasn't hard. I was so, I was just so interested in the topic and, and really in these two brothers. And so, um, you know, I, I was successful for the most part in keeping it out of my mind during the week. I, I'm, I'm a morning person. So by the time I came home from work uh, during the week, I'm not very creative. And so I wasn't really tempted to do any writing. I did do some editing uh, weeknights, but in terms of the writing piece, I mean, I, again, I was just so excited about um, sitting down at the computer on Saturday mornings, um, you know, and I'd go back and read the last bit of what I had written before, again, maybe a chapter to sort of get me back in the mood and the setting and to take stock of where I was in the book and to help me figure out where I needed to go next. Um, so I, I don't know, it was, it really was not as hard as I had expected it to be. Um, and, and it was just, again, it was such a joy to, to actually, uh, uh, you know, to write the book and get to know these characters. I talked to, to authors who sometimes, uh, they mentally cast these books, uh, especially books like yours that, that, you know, th this book just screams that it needs to be, um, a documentary, a mini series, a movie, you know, you've got these two brothers that wind up on opposite sides of, of this, this very serious conflict that actually happened. Do you do that in your mind's eye? Do you cast these characters? Um, you know, I, I do not. Now, if you were to ask my wife, she would say, absolutely. She could tell you she has characters already picked yeah. out, but, uh, but no, I, I didn't so much. Um, I wasn't really thinking about that. I have, I, I've been very, uh, flattered by the number of people who told me the book's very cinematic and, and, you know, they think it should, you know, it should be made into a movie and they can see it made a movie. One thing that was a funny uh, story I'll tell you about one of my law partners who he tells me he read the book and he came to me and he said that Chris Cooper should play Pa. And I said, well, you know, he was in the movie Mate One. He goes, no, I don't know what that movie is. So I found that very interesting that you know, the main character in the movie Mate One from 1987 is the character that he cast as Pa if, if he were 
if he were able to, you know, cast a movie. <clears throat> but I can't say that I've really I, that I've thought of, you know, who would be a, who would be a great Derwood or who would be a great Bascom. Though, like I say, my wife sure has. Your wife obviously is is one of your uh, beta readers, one of your test readers, and it's always difficult, I think, for writers, especially early in their career on their first or second book to get honest feedback because you're going to share it with people around you who presumably know you and like you, or in some cases, perhaps just at least tolerate you. Uh, but, <laughs> but they're generally speaking going to say, Oh, this book's great. And this, I, I love it because they don't want to hurt your feelings. So how does a writer uh, like you, who's, who's just getting started, how do you get honest feedback on the book? Because you don't have a publisher, for example, whose editor is going to give you really brutal notes, I don't think. So for your first readers, how do you encourage good, honest feedback? Well, for the first year, I was working with a writing group, and we had all met in a class that um, uh, was taught by a great Richmond uh, novelist and playwright and a great creative writing instructor, a, a gentleman named David Robbins. And um, so we met in a, in a short story class that David taught, and then we, the four or five, or five of us, had formed this writing group, and each was working on uh, his or her own novel. And so we were we were exchanging pages with each other and also uh, with David and um, uh, getting honest feedback was not an issue with that group. We, we were, we were <laughs> very, very honest with each other. And, uh, and it really helped after the first year, the group disbanded because two of the four had finished their book. And as I said, I spent about, it took me another couple of years after that. Um, but so I was getting great feedback from, from those people and from David Robbins uh, and then I had a couple of friends who were really good readers that uh, know me well enough that, you know, they could, you know, know, they could tell me, you know, I think this is an issue or this is an issue. And, and one of the examples was in the, I have a golf scene in the book and, and Derwood asked for a driver and this friend of mine who was a beta reader, <clears throat> he, he very nicely wrote me and said, you know, you may want to check that because I'm pretty sure they didn't call, they didn't use the same nomenclature for golf clubs in the early 1900s that we do. And, Sure enough, Googled it and found out that a driver back then was called a masher. Um, so, so I had some honest, some honest friends who, who were willing to, to tell me when I was missing the mark. See, and I think that's fantastic that you could accept that kind of feedback. I would also think, though, that you're so close to your book. I mean, it's, it took you three years to write this thing that there were probably times you got feedback where you stuck to your guns, so to speak. Were there instances where... You said, you know, I appreciate the thought, but, you know, I'm going to keep it the way it is in this particular section. Sure. I mean, I don't know that I can think of specific examples, but but absolutely. I mean, there were, there were a half, handful of times where I'd look, you know, get things back and I'd look at it. And so well, I understand where they're coming from. But, but you know, I just I think my my um, instinct or approach to this is 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 at least as good, if not better. And so I, I went with my gut. Um, but you know, the, uh, again, got a lot of great, great feedback from, from David Robbins, who has lots of writing experience. And I, and I, I, I listened to David um, quite a bit. You know, if he told me I was missing the mark, then I'd go back and give it serious thought and consideration because uh, I want to be sure I was, you know, <clears throat> I was putting all this time in and it was going to, I wasn't going to just um, ignore advice from people who's, who I respect. As we wrap things up, Jeff, I wonder if, you know, there's someone listening right now who thinks they've got a novel in them 
uh, or a book of any kind. And they just, uh, to use the monopoly phrase, they can't get off go. What, what advice would you give to someone who's where you were five years ago, who thought they had a book in them, but they, they didn't know exactly how to start? What would you tell them? Well, I mean, I tell them to see if they can find a, a, two things. One, see if you can find a writing course being offered, you know, a creative writing course if, if you're looking, to, if you want to write a novel. Uh, you know, whether it's a short story course, but, you know, it'll help you with so many things like, you know, understanding point of view and, um, you know, character development and those, and those things. The other thing is, is try to find a writing group, try to find a group of people who like you are working on something and that, you know, can, that you can count on to help you and give you honest feedback and in turn, you know, will expect the same of you. You know, those are the two things I did. Uh, my wife had been encouraging me to write a book for years, and um, I don't know if I hadn't have encountered uh, the, these uh, folks in my writing group uh, and this this class that I took that I would have ever been able to, you know, have, I would have succeeded in getting a novel uh, written. So that's what I would, you know, that, that would be my advice. And, and the other thing is just, you know, keep at it. You hear from some, some people tell you, you got to write every day, and again, my experience was I didn't have to write every day, but I did have to write according to my schedule, which was every weekend and pretty much all day Saturday and Sundays I was devoted to writing. You know, so find a time when you can write, try to you know, be consistent with it and not worry too much about word count at the end of the day. Be more, uh, more concerned about, you know, did I write something that's good and then go back and edit it. Let it all out and edit it later. It obviously worked for you. New York Times bestselling author David L. Robbins says of Jeff Barnes' book, Mingo, Mingo is like the mining of coal itself, explosive and powerful, darkness emerging into light. I love that you shared uh, the process behind writing the book with us. Thanks for being here today, Jeff. Burke, it was my pleasure. I can't thank you enough for uh, uh, spending this time with me and, and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Well, you're a fan of novelists like our friend Homer Hickam, who writes about uh, West Virginia and the town of Colwood. You're going to love learning about Mingo County, West Virginia, Cold Wars, and this, uh, this fight between two brothers in the book Mingo from author Jeff Barnes, available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, bookstores everywhere. Ask for it by name, and you can also visit Jeff on his website, WJeffBarnes.com. The book is Mingo. Jeff Barnes is the author. And thank you for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We are uh, out every Tuesday with a brand new episode at Spotify, iHeartMedia, Apple iTunes, wherever you download your podcast. Be sure to subscribe and tell a friend if you like what you hear. Thanks to SpeakerMatch.com, our show sponsor. Thank you for listening. I'm Burke Allen. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day. Bye, everybody.